Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Platform Enterprise, the show that platforms enterprising individuals and the work they do. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and I'm the founder of Platform Enterprise, a business built on the principles of the circular economy to protect the planet and empower people. Our first project platform reimagines renewable in a really unique and beautiful way. We hope its launch next year will highlight and challenge the standard greenwashing practices that inspired its design. But I can't say more on that for now. But you can find our latest updates on our social media pages at Platform Enterprise. Today's show is with Brad Vanstone. Brad is the founder of Willowcroft, a climate change lobbyist, professional networker and proud moustache wearer. We spoke about his plant-based cheese business and how that has completely taken off in the Netherlands and the UK, and also about the work Willowcroft is doing to help farmers transition into plant-based farming and the lobbying that is apparently still needed at the EU to ensure that everybody has fair, equitable and clear access to plant-based alternatives. I found this to be an extremely enlightening conversation, and I really, really hope that you enjoy it. Hi, Brad. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so why don't you give uh, people a bit of background as to your business, Willowcroft? Sure. So I moved to the Netherlands uh, four years ago. And on moving to the Netherlands, I started to eat a mainly plant-based diet. I uh, found it very easy to give up meat and milk, but uh, cheese was my favorite food until that point. So uh, that was a little trickier. Um, and I think it was made a lot harder by the quality of the replacements in the supermarket. Um, so for meat and milk, they were they were even back then they were pretty awesome actually. Um, and so I just started to experiment at home. Um, my uh, my partner and myself we uh, had been getting pretty uh, yeah into making pretty much everything that that we were eating. And uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer, so I had a basic understanding of how to make dairy cheese. So I was applying similar processes, similar nutritionals, but of course a plant-based ingredient base. So that initially was very much a kind of pet project that I was doing on the side, but uh, I, I was getting more and more into it and I spent uh, about six to nine months sort of developing the recipes. And yeah, we just had some friends around one evening and uh, yeah, they pulled all the cheeses out of the fridge and uh, they were gone in a couple of minutes and uh, yeah. It wasn't a light bulb moment as such, but it was definitely a defining moment. And uh, yeah, the next day I, I woke up and I I then actually just started to look at how I could actually turn this into something. So that started with a market. Um, and then for about a year, it remained really artisanal. Um, so I, I was just selling, a, yeah, kind of store to store, um, yeah, delivering everything, making everything, packaging everything uh, here in my apartment. Um, and then got to a crossroads and that was, do I keep going down the artisanal route or should I solve the kind of issue I had initially, which was good plant-based cheese at, uh, at kind of mass retail. So that's what we're up to now. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's a huge growth. I mean, you just, uh, landed in the UK in the past couple of months, didn't you? Your cheeses? It's back home in the UK. Yeah. It's a, a really nice moment. Yeah. That's amazing. So let's let's take it back a little bit. Um, you started eating a plant-based diet in the Netherlands. Mm. Were you aware of veganism beforehand? Were you like politically inclined that way? You know, what kind of made the switch for you? Yeah, I mean, I I'd started to get a lot more conscious of what was going on in the world in terms of climate change and a lot of those movements a couple of years prior. 
um, to, to starting to eat that diet. But yeah, I would say I was, I was, I had kind of had my, had my hat, head in the sand a little bit, you know, I was kind of pushing it to one side, not really kind of facing the, the true extent of the issue, I'd say. Um, I was starting to do a few things with my life. So for example, I was religious and making the office recycle in New York. And um, I was starting to like offset um, my flights and just doing small things and really starting to also educate myself a bit more. So watching documentaries, reading books. But when we moved to the Netherlands, we had a lot of time because we're moving to a fresh place, didn't know anyone. Um, and it was the middle of winter. And so <laughs> it was a perfect time to, I guess, get quite caught up in the topic. And I quite quickly realized if I was to change one thing that could have a positive impact, it was my diet. So that's kind of how it came about. Okay. And was that surprising for your grandparents? I mean, you, you say they're dairy farmers. I imagine you spent a lot of time down there with them. How has it been for them knowing that you've kind mm. of, you know, moved away from their life's work yeah, or do you see it as a continuation it was as su surprising for them as it was for me i mean i <laughs> loved cheese i used to have a not not a pint of milk but a glass of milk every morning um i definitely have meat two meals a day so it was a big change but um i think the rationale was quite clear and the impact was was very clear and for my grandparents it was yeah, a bit of a shock to start with, but they were actually, they were actually pretty understanding of it. Um, I think my grandpa in particular, he uh, he really understood the kind of um, ethics of farming and their farm, for example, was quite a, um, well, it was a very good farm in terms of farming terms. You know, the animals spent nine months of the year out in the fields. They had plenty of room on the farm itself. Um, they lived quite long lives. Um, so this was kind of a different form of farming to what we kind of know now. Um, but yeah, they, they, they've been pretty understanding about it. I think they understand that we can't consume the diets we have today across the whole planet. So something's got to give. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, what do they think of it? You know, when you take it home for them to try and everything. Yeah. So my, my grams really loved it my grandma never tried it, actually she passed a couple of years ago but my oh, so my gramps was uh yeah a big fan um we uh we we just got into waitrose um before he he passed as well and that was pretty sweet because he got to see it go full circle he actually used to uh sell into the supermarket in the uk waitrose that we got into so it was pretty sweet. really uh, 30 years later we were in uh, Waitrose under the same name, Willycroft Farm, um, but uh, yeah, two very different products. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! I think it's such a beautiful uh, story and journey for for Willowcroft, and to kind of marry like you know innovation, which is essentially you know plant based diet is very innovative with tradition. I mean, do mm. you think that's maybe part of the ideology that's helped you secure like you know so mm. many loyal customers, people that maybe normally wouldn't have mm. tried or made a switch? Yeah, I, I think one thing that people really resonate with is we never try to condemn dairy too much. So I think my view on how you change something is by working with someone. And in terms of the change that I would like to see it's it's the dairy industry transitioning but by transitioning you got to help them do it and so we respect the past 
there's a lot to be learned from the past. I mean, she's especially is something that has just taken centuries to evolve. And there's so many amazing things that are passed down generation to generation. So there's so much information to learn that. Um, and we shouldn't just rip up the rule book and, and just, you know, start afresh overnight. Um, so firstly, there's that bit to learn, but also if you want people to change, you've got to work with them. And so what, where we kind of see um, our, our kind of biggest impacts being is um, doing stuff like transitional farming projects where we start planting some of our ingredients on dairy farms and start working with the dairy farmers to show them a way or a path away from dairy. Um, and I think that's quite a unique kind of legacy of Willie Craft, and we're well positioned to do that, I think, because of the past we have. Oh, that's amazing. So are these projects, you know, are you starting working on them already? Mm. You have some up and running. So there's a pilot starting next spring. So uh, we're going to be planting uh, a load of white beans that we use for um, a couple of our uh, base uh, cheeses or, or the base of a couple of our cheeses. And we're going to be planting those in the eastern Netherlands with a dairy farmer uh, over there. So, uh, yeah, that's it's, amazing. It's going to be a really nice pilot. And there's so much interest in it from other dairy farmers as well. So we just need this to be a success. And then I think it can be rolled out in a lot of places. OK, let's get into that a little bit more, um, because I think what we often see Mm. uh perceive in the the news the media the kind of dialogue um yeah. is it's quite partisan you know the Definitely. vegan industry and traditional mm. industry um mm. the animal agriculture so it's really interesting to hear you say that there are dairy farmers that are interested that want to make this switch was yeah. it difficult to find them have you had resistance from other farmers i mean can you talk a little bit more about that yeah i I would say it's actually not been too tricky to find them. Um, I think so many farmers are really struggling right now. So they're looking for alternatives. Um, so they, they definitely have their eyes and ears on, on the ground. Also, you're seeing the government saying, right, we need to reduce the number of cattle. So here in the Netherlands, they did initially say that by 2030, you'd need uh, a 50% reduction on the number of cows here. They have since gone back on that and um lowered the, the amount but they are still saying they want to reduce it so there's a lot of pushing coming from above there's a lot of appetite because of the low incomes coming from the farmers themselves that being said it needs to be a really well thought through plan like farmers are they're they're, they're business people um at heart and they they do things, I think, for the long term. So I think a lot of people are thinking what's going to happen in the next couple of years. But a farmer is really thinking what's going to happen in the next decade, the decade after that, because it's very generational. So it has to be a plan that really can you know, stand the test of time in that regard. Uh, so it can't just be uh, something you do on a whim. So when we've put forward something that's quite structured, then we see quite a lot of appetite. So, for example, with the Bean Project, We've got a bean farmer who uh, runs the the biggest kind of cooperative of bean farmers here in the Netherlands. And he has the expertise. He knows how much you can get out of that uh, soil uh, because he's already growing these these crops in other places around the Netherlands. So it's not us coming in and saying, right, let's give this a go. We've got like expertise to show the farmer that actually it's not that big a risk to uh, to start this project. Um, so we are still doing a pilot because we just want to test the water. Uh, but I think I'm very, very confident in its success. 
That's fantastic. I think a lot of people, um, got myself included sometimes, forget that a, a switch to a plant-based diet still means that there need to be farmers for growing the, the plants yeah. and the vegetation. It's not about just killing the farming industry whatsoever. It's about asking it to transition with the world. There's so many factors there. You've got also the, the soil. You know, a lot of soil can't just go straight on to being used um, to, for crops. Once it's been used for animals, there's a lot of uh, nutrients that have been depleted or there's too much of certain um, nutrients as well. Um, and then you've got the cattle themselves. Um, you don't want to just take them to the slaughter. Um, that's, that's not overly ethical. So there is that factor as well. Um, so yeah, there's all manner of considerations for sure. Yeah. And Absolutely. then you've got income as well. You know, a farmer is getting this amount of income. You can't just pop down a load of beans and bang, you get a harvest the next year. It's probably going to take a few years to get it right. Um, so you've got to supplement that income in between. And that's where government grants and stuff like that come in. And actually there's a lot of that around. So um, that part we should have covered, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Do you think um, that there are more um, vegan or, or plant-based businesses that are taking this kind of approach to, to try and act essentially as a bridge? I mean, you're trying to create your own supplier, but also act mm. as a bridge for somebody from one industry into another. Do you think that's particular of Willowcroft or are you seeing that a lot in the industry? It's happening. We're not the first and um, yeah, we're, we're definitely not alone. Uh, companies like Oatly have done this really well. Um, they've got so many former dairy farmers growing their oats now, uh, which is really cool. Um, I'm seeing it with a few other organizations as well. There's a few transitional farming organizations that are set up just to do this. Um, but it's it's not happening as widely as I'd, I'd like. Um, I think still just like in any industry a lot of businesses are just focused on generating revenue even if it's a plant-based project and that's not a bad thing necessarily but i think if you really want to tackle some of these broader environmental issues you've got to start at the source you've got to have a very long-term view you've got to start putting numbers behind your impact because without those things, there's there's a lot of uh, kind of guesswork at play, um, and yeah, I, I I don't think you can you can really define your impact until you start taking that wider view. Yeah, absolutely. What well, what do you want Willowcrafts Willowcroft sorry impact to be in ten years, twenty years? What's mm. what's the path for the future? It's it's transitional farming i think would be the big thing uh so really providing a kind of template that dairy farms can use to transition and then also seeing a lot more transparency in terms of emissions so i would love to see things like um carbon data on most packaging i'd love to see things like carbon taxes introduced because i don't think we should ever ban anything and i i don't condone people from not eating any meat but I just think you have to have things like true cost accounting factored in. Um, if, if something is causing a lot more harm than another thing, it should cost a lot more money. And you're starting to see this a little bit in supermarkets, but most things that we buy at the retail stores don't cost anywhere near what they should. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a big thing that's, that's screwing up the world. So, yeah. 
There's also a resistance from some of the big players in the world to yeah. take even a hit to the profits that they're used to. Mm. Like I was, um, I read something the other day about how there's this, um, there's this recycled aluminium mm. can that's been produced by Novelis, which is one of the biggest um, aluminium producers in the world. That means they also mine it, but they're big proponents on sustainability um, and one of the reasons for using recycled aluminium is it uses 4% of the energy hmm. than um, just mining aluminium out of the wow. ground. Yeah. And aluminium is an amazing material because it can hmm. be recycled infinitely, indefinitely. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's really for the circular economy. So they produced this Evercan, that's what they call it. And they, um, you know, approached Pepsi and Coca-Cola and these companies that they already work with and said, you know, do you want to make the switch? And they said, no. And uh, when a journalist kind of caught onto it and went to speak to Pepsi and Coca-Cola, they said, well, you know, we don't want to work with, you know, an, one exclusive supplier. That that would be, that wouldn't make business sense. It wouldn't be wise. Um, you know, when it costs a bit more and all of this stuff. Crazy. And it's like, it's it absolutely crazy. I mean, if you think of the amount of subsidiaries a company like Coca-Cola has and like all of the profit coming in, yeah. And just the lack of foresight. Yeah, yeah, it's mental. And, yeah. and these guys, when they change one thing, it has the biggest difference because it's just such a big supply chain. And yeah, to them, you know, going from like 40% profit margin to 39%, I mean, who cares? Like, it's still right. unbelievably healthy. They're sitting on piles of gold. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's mental. And it, it opens it up for, for other entrepreneurs and other businesses. I mean, it's so, so, so hard, I think, for young entrepreneurs today who have mm. an idea for a sustainable business um, because sustainability is still currently against the norm. Mm. And therefore, the materials that you might need or the model that you might need or the suppliers that you might need are going to be more expensive mm. than the traditional alternative that you're trying to replace, not because it costs more money to make, Quite contrary, sometimes it costs less money to make, but the demand is not there because the big players just do not want to play the yeah. you know the game of climate change and sustainability. Yeah, I mean, this is why I think you kind of have to force people's hand a little bit. Like this is the role of government and unfortunately businesses because they're so far reaching and global now, they can kind of, yeah, they can kind of dip in, in and out of governments. They can, if they're having production issues back home in a in a kind of, more stringent country they go and produce in a country where they don't have those issues so i think this is where we need to really tax these organizations hold them to account more and then people and consumers you hope as well will really push things and then i guess the final thing is price when if this initiative that you've just mentioned if all of a sudden it's you know 20 percent cheaper to use a recycled can then they will do it just because of that so I don't actually really care what the reason is, even though morally I do, but but really at the end of the day, I just want, want the change to happen. Um, but I think it's those things that, one of those things has to happen in order for, for change to come. Um, and the, the, the best example I think is the renewable sector, which has just, is just flying purely because of price. Um, that's literally the only reason. It's just cheaper to produce energy um, through renewable means now so 
all these targets we've set are achievable because of those reasons. Um, yeah. So it's a good case study. I think you're right when you say, you know, you have to sort of leave your morals at the door at one point and just be like, whatever gets the change done, because we're on a ticking time clock. You know, scientists, is, uh, there's stuff about 2030 and 2050. Like, those are the big dates that I wake up with in my, like, in my mind yeah. every morning. Um, and there's so much information to consume. And frankly, the connections between companies and what they're doing in emissions, it's all extremely opaque. So like whatever gets them through the door mm. onto the side of making a change, great. If it's price, great. If it's morals, even better. But mm. they have to, they have to make the change. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk let's talk about the the EU mm. and the recent regulations. Mm. Um, because you've um something I see with your role as Willowcroft is also like as an educational mm. sort of educator to your network mm. and you've been writing a lot about these recent regulations so so why don't you say what happened um with yeah, the, so, using the names so basically there were two well there were a load of amendments that were put forward recently by um the committee that deals with agricultural policy and food and there were two regulations or amendments that concerned plant-based projects. And they were stowed away at the bottom of this huge document. There were Amendment 165 and Amendment 171, you know, 10, 20, 30 pages down. Uh, amendment 165 was spotted quite early on by interest groups and journalists um, and was quite heavily backed and that basically related to the naming of uh, plant-based burgers and and meat alternatives. And it was basically saying that there would be a ban on the use of the word uh, veggie burger, for example. Um, so there was a big petition and actually that, I think, swayed the, um, the, the EU to vote um, to not put that amendment through. And then Amendment 171 was discovered really late. So about two weeks before we first got wind of it and we saw oh, no. only Politico had covered it and a few other groups. And we decided uh, that uh, a number of my colleagues were going to do something outside of Willycroft and because we thought, thought it was best to separate it from the company um, and to put views forward as members of the EU, you know, citizens of the EU. And basically, um, a, a small group of uh, kind of activists managed to get in touch with, I think it was at least half of the M MEPs in um, the EU, but we still weren't able to sway them to vote the right way. And what, what, what was Amendment 171? So yeah, that, let me explain that part. So it was much more concerning, actually, than 165. So Firstly, there was some language in there. So words like cheese alternative um, and uh, yogurt alternative and those kind of things have been banned. Then there was a rule about packaging and not being able to um, have packaging that dairy products are already in. So, for example, no. milk cartons and yogurt pots and things like that are in theory now banned. Then... For me, this is the most concerning thing, this last bit. Then there's been a ban on um, the ability to uh, cross-compare a plant-based product next to a dairy one. And by that, I mean health claims, environmental claims, um, anything that can give you a point of difference between the two. And that was the thing that, that annoyed me the most because 
that's what you get in in an autocracy when you can't put um, two facts next to each other and let an individual decide what those facts mean. That's not a democracy. That's an autocracy. Yeah. So yeah. that really stung. Um, and so we're going to have to do quite a bit of changes to our packaging. Actually, the formats for our packaging were okay, but things like our the use of the word cheese, for example, you won't be able to do that. We're definitely still going to put our emissions on our packaging. We're still going to talk about how much lower it is than dairy because I, I think it's absolute bullshit, quite frankly. Um, and, um, yeah, we we will fight this from a position where we have a bit more safety with our packaging, I think. Um, but, yeah, that, that really that really stung. Um, and uh, there will be a lot of campaigns. Like, it will take until 2021 to go through the end of 2021. There will probably be, um, yeah, some kind of challenges in the courts, but it's, it's pretty sickening that people even put forward these kind of things because it's just, it, it, it's senseless. I mean, the argument surrounds consumers being confused, um, but normally <laughs> what consumer doesn't know the difference now between a plant-based product and, and a dairy product. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. And there are so many kind of um contradictory uh, kind of meat and dairy products that have mental names that are incredibly confusing like are there any bishops in um, in in bishop stilton are there any um wellington boots in beef wellington um no there's not um it's it's just yeah okay i I really want i really want to sink our teeth into this because this is that's absolutely disgusting quite frankly, mm. to, I mean, to limit a new industry in such a way, to infantilize citizens in such a way, and to directly harm uh, consumers' choices that, mm. you know, to benefit the planet. Mm. That Who put that through? Yeah, Who it? did that? <laughs> yeah, there's a committee, there's about 100 people, an agricultural committee, they pushed it forward. And then, I mean... I don't know how much they discuss these things in the EU Parliament. I don't know if they go, okay, Amendment 1, what do people think of this? I presume they do vote on every single one, but I don't think they debate it. So I don't think they're that well read up on it. I think what would have happened is um, the Agricultural Committee in each country will have gone, right, MEPs in France, we need you to support this because we've looked at it and we believe you should vote on it. And they're like, okay, well, if you said I will, I will. Um, and the big dairy sectors are here in the Netherlands, France, to a degree, Germany. Those are the real powerhouses that are forcing this kind of stuff through. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. That's shocking. Why do uh, let, let's go through the, the three parts actually to talk about why it's mm. so dangerous. Mm. Um, so number one was the words. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So why, in your opinion, is that so damaging? I mean, why can't you just call it, like, I don't know, um, Willowcroft, not, uh, well, God, uh, I can't even think, well, <laughs> not we, Parmesan. We start with the history. The word cheese derives from the word quat. The word quat describes a process of uh, fermenting and souring vegetables, not dairy. So there you go. that's a ridiculous starting point. Then when a human being is trying to look at something 
we're always looking for a comparative point. So if we were to invent a new word, sure, in 20 years' time, maybe someone's going to use it. But the reality is they're probably going to associate it to Willycroft and then other plant-based cheese brands are not going to want to use it because they're like, well, that's a Willycroft word. You know, we want to do our own word. And it's just it's going to become so confusing. Like, we're trying to make cheese. We're just trying to make it without animal products in it. Um, so the processes and, and um, the flavor and, and everything about it is, is a cheese. Um, so that's what we want to call it. Um, and that's what the customer has, has come to know. Um, so we make it in a way that it can be used very interchangeably um, with, um, yeah, as you would a dairy cheese. So that, that's kind of how I feel about number one. Um, then the- I mean, it's, it's making a, a behavior change, yeah. which is already quite difficult, um, yeah. even more difficult. Yeah, it's- for sure. And, uh, unlike the agriculture industry, we're not, or the dairy industry, we don't get 40% of the EU's budget as a subsidy. Um, so what is already, uh- yeah, the, uh, the cap policy, common agricultural policy has been around since the EU began. It's the biggest okay. um, kind of payout in, in the world for any agricultural sector. And it is, I can't remember the figure that it's worth, but it's 40% of the EU's annual budget. And another thing they voted on recently was that it would not change until 2028. So there would be no reduction, adjustment to look at maybe biodiversity or anything like that. It's, 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 it's absolutely mental. I mean, how can, how can they be so out of touch? With the reality, um, because it's it, the, the there's not not much diversity to the groups. The I mean the, the people lobbying are generally speaking the the dairy uh, industries. We're not seeing anywhere near enough lobbying from alternative, um, yeah, kind of organisations. Um, by the way, if I started a new government, the first thing I would get rid of is lobbying. I don't think it helps anyone. It just creates senseless um money spending and yeah. it's more elitism it's yeah. Mental. Um, yeah but um yeah it's it, it, the when the more you do dig into a topic like that the more you're like god there's just no common sense here. you're you're protecting a very small well not it's not a small group but it's it's a group that has been so well protected for so long and the planet is screaming at us to change and yeah. it's people are just blindly going on as if yeah. nothing is happening. It's, uh, it's I mean, the thing is as well, it's not like, you know, you using the word cheese in any way actually harms these other businesses if their product is up to scratch and is fulfilling the requirements of that particular consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'm a consumer and I would like to eat um, a cheese that is flavorful, um, that has the lowest possible carbon emissions and is not directly contributing to climate change, then mm. I should be allowed to call it a damn cheese. Um, yeah. It's up to them to bring their product up to scratch in any way, if at all possible, yeah. or find a way to fulfill the requirements of consumers' choices nowadays. It's not mm. to government to sanction innovation. Mm. No, for sure. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah, and we want to work with the dairy industry. You know, we have yeah. we work with a dairy distributor. 
we are doing these transitional farming projects like we're 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 doing we we get we get on great with most dairy farmers the dairy farmers aren't the problem it's the lobbyists and the makers um they're the ones who are misdirecting things and of course the really big dairy organizations that have destroyed the industry they've taken um yeah they've basically just centered all of the profits in one place and can they now hold so much power um it's going to be very hard to change their their current position right let's talk about number two the packaging thing yeah why why is that harmful so i mean i think again it's a bit like the name where you're looking for something that's that's similar um and it's kind of become synonymous with milk or the replacement um and it's it, it just doesn't you just you just don't see that in other industries like there's no kind of um yeah, kind of case study for this or you know you don't see tomato sauce guys going to carbonara sauce guys well sorry but this sachet we got here for it. <laughs> it's, it's mental like this, what would happen to the wine industry you know there's only so many ways you can bottle something <laughs> yeah I mean, it's well exactly like the next route is to put milk in a milk like what do you put it in then like a I don't know I know and then what kind of um research is it going to take to find the correct solution and development and then what kind of carbon emissions are going to be created from all of that research and all of these uh, new materials that have to be sourced or used or done in a certain way like you know the milk carton exists because it's the the peak of innovation for things that contain milk yeah so why not just leave it alone (laughs) yeah for sure it just doesn't add up it really doesn't um right and remind me what number three was again um i think we actually discussed that we had the names we had it was the emissions right yeah actually maybe we haven't but yeah this this for me is is the killer because yeah it's you you should always be able to to point the difference between something and you you can maybe say that okay any language surrounding it can't be inflammatory or directs the customer in a certain way but you should be able to say this is what we produce and this is our emissions this is the difference between the dairy product that we're replacing and then you're not saying it's better it's it's xyz you're just putting the information in front of someone that at the very least should be allowed in any thriving democracy well i mean it's surely just taking two pieces of information that are already available if somebody wants to look it up and simply placing them next to each other what could possibly be so wrong about that yeah and the thing is is when a dairy company has that information as well they can then make improvements you can have dairy that is net positive um that is capturing more emissions than it produces this is why i'm not gonna sit here and say that all dairy should be removed because mm-hmm. there's a lot of tradition there there is a way of, of doing it in in an ethical way um but it can't sustain the bulk of our diets it needs to be something which becomes um a bit of uh, a treat or a novelty um if people do still want that that diet um 
so it 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 allows the dairy industry to improve as well um because without these metrics you can't actually you don't know where you stand you don't the customer doesn't know where to stand the producer doesn't know where it stands um you can't make improvements and we're just pulling you know we're just guessing about our impact or you know what what we're doing with the planet have you spoken to any of your um dairy farmer contacts about the eu regulations yeah i mean they think it's pretty damn ridiculous to be honest like they they are not on board with these things yeah good good for them i think the the collaboration between you and your partners in an industry Mm. um it's absolutely fantastic and it's an example of i mean i think how we should all be moving forward Mm. when you know sharing a common goal of okay how do we feed people how do we do it well how do we save the planet Mm. that seems vital and a really really good example Mm. i'm just i'm so astonished by the eu Uh, thing really interesting it would be an interesting campaign to uh get a load of farmers signatures saying how ridiculous it was that would be the most compelling up yours to the lawmakers and you probably want to do it in a delicate way where you had people's names so they could prove it was a true person but it was done in a private or an anonymous way um Mm. which is easily done with a petition but that that's got legs do you see Willowcroft being behind these kinds of things or perhaps you mm. as an individual? Yeah, definitely me as an individual. And we've got a lot of colleagues who would do the same. Uh, but um, I, yeah, still weighing up whether or not it's healthy for the campaign to put Willowcroft behind it because the campaign is more important than the benefit of using Willowcroft. That's not, not what it's about. Um, it's the end goal. So, yeah, that's that's a conversation we we always have at the start of one of these. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I want to um, go back to talk about Willowcroft a little bit, and I want to talk about your decision uh, for who you appointed as your CEO, mm-hmm. because yeah. you are the founder of Willowcroft, and who's your CEO? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that would be Mother Nature. And, um, yeah, the reason we did that was to just really hold ourselves a little bit more to account. So it's actually quite simple when we make a decision now because we always look at it and go, okay, is this a decision which is legitimately responsible? And if it's something really short term, then we are okay with maybe not having the perfect solution. So, for example, we're transitioning away from nuts at the moment. It, we can't just stop producing the current cheeses like that. We need to get the new recipe um, fixed with with uh, the beans that we're transitioning on. So we have the end solution in sight, but it's going to take a bit of time. So that's that's kind of where we kind of sit with it. But yeah, it's really to say that to kind of remove any egos or kind of um, uh, kind of personal ownership of the business it's more to say like yeah we are accountable to the planet because without the planet the rest is irrelevant it's a fantastic initiative and i I think it really really works well i mean i follow willowcroft um and you know your ceo mother nature on Mm -hmm. a couple of platforms and she's very educational (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> we try and make the, the things she talks about nothing directly to do with Willie Croft. So sure, things like farming, transitional farming, we're going to talk about, but less in relation to Willie Croft, more as just to get people thinking, talking about those things more. And the big thing we want to do uh, over the next year is try and get a load of other companies to also appoint Mother Nature as, as their CEO as well to create a bit of a movement with that. So that's going to oh, happen. Yeah, for brilliant sure. idea. Brilliant idea. Uh, can I ask why you're transitioning away from nuts? Yes, for sure. So when, well, let me start with the kind of industry as a whole. So there's basically two types of plant-based cheese maker at the moment. You've got your a mass-produced uh, plant-based cheese that's made from coconut oil or palm oil. Ooh, we know that's not good. No, it's not good. And it, it's neither healthy nor um, healthy for the planet. So it's leading to a lot of deforestation, a lot of monocrop systems. Um, and yeah, they're doing good volume, these guys. They've given some kind of entry level to the space as a whole, but I don't think it's the long-term solution. Then you've got artisanal producers, generally speaking, using nuts as a base. Nuts are great because nutritionally they're really similar to milk, so high in uh, protein and fat. So most artisanal plant-based cheese producers will start by making a milk. Then they'll add some kind of emulsion. They'll probably do some kind of fermentation on the side. Um, and that'll kind of give you the end product. That's a very kind of basic overview. Um, that produces often a really high quality product, great taste. Um, but the shelf life is really short. The cost is high. And what we've recently discovered is the emissions are really high as well, which is the reason for transitioning. So you start out as a business thinking you're doing good because you're producing um, something that isn't using dairy. But actually, things aren't as black and white as that. And we did a load of uh, life cycle assessments, which is where you look at the total emissions across uh, an ingredient's entire uh, life cycle. So from the moment it's in the ground to the moment it ends up in the consumer's hands, and you do that for each ingredient, you include transport and packaging and, and everything involved, and you get a metric of how much CO2 is produced. That metric is not as low as we'd want. It's lower than dairy, but it's not as low as we'd want. So we've worked out that it will be much lower if we use beans and pulses. Not so much just because they can, can be grown here, but more the processing of that ingredient is just way lower. Most nuts have a shell on them. They take up a lot of energy to deshell them. Often they're shelled in a different continent. So a lot of nuts are grown in Africa, for example, shelled in Vietnam, and then oh, they get wow. back to West Africa and then they're sold. Also, there are social issues involved. So um, a lot of nuts, they emit a kind of poisonous residue when you deshell them. You see people's skin getting burnt really bad. So it's, it's mental how many layers there are oh. to these kind of topics. So that's why we were looking for something that could still give us that really uh, similar base to milk. So decent amount of protein and fat, but we could grow it closer to home. Processing was less, cost was a little less as well. So that's why we made the switch. Did you ever, um, in your journey as a sustainable entrepreneur, because you're tackling such a complex problem, as you say, I mean, nuts alone is an ingredient and look at what you have to deal with. Um, do you ever experience a kind of, 
a decision fatigue or a sense of frankly helplessness sometimes when when facing a problem in in which there is no perfect solution actually yeah i mean de- de- you definitely have moments where you scratch your head thinking geez i'm just trying to do something good here and it's bloody hard but um there's always an option and i think a lot of issues with climate related projects over the last 40 years is people have always sought the perfect solution the reality is the perfect solution is never available in life generally speaking so better to make improvements and to keep working to consistently iterate and improve upon that than to just stand still um yeah i i i think that's it's just an excuse otherwise just not not to press ahead not to do something and there's a tomorrow is always a different day so whenever i'm frustrated about something you know you get a good night's sleep you have a cold shower in the morning and bang there's a solution at hand so there's yeah i i don't get it for a prolonged period of time i do get it occasionally but um yeah if it was easy everyone would be doing it eh? true 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 so how at willowcroft do you ensure that you're you know sticking to your ideology all the way through and not cutting corners because there i mean we now have a term greenwashing for companies using sustainability as a way to sell a product but when you actually you know take apart the mechanisms of how that product is put together or their partners or the energy mm-hmm. they use they're not sustainable companies at all so what kind of things have you implemented at willowcroft to ensure that through and through it's as, as as sustainable as possible. Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do is is put numbers behind things. So with impact and emissions, once you've measured your emissions, you can then cross compare them to other producers, other dairy producers. Um, you can set goals. You can look at certain ingredients to swap out um, to lower emissions. You can look at reducing transport. There's so many things you can do with numbers. But just with words, you're really... You're putting something out of the air. You don't really know the true extent of a problem. So the most important thing is looking at numbers. Um, then I think internal policies are really important. So for example, for us having mother nature there, that is just always a guiding force. Um, I think also the placing like genuine importance on impact. So within Willie Croft, it's one of our five departments. We have an in-house activist who is there to champion causes that we support. Um, we also have um, someone who's done all of our LCAs within in-house as well, in collaboration with another company. Life- What's an LCA? Uh, life cycle assessment. So all of the em- emission kind of data gathering. Um, so we've put real energy and focus on that. And yeah, it, what I would say that's really important for any business is to start that from day one because the minute you start selling something at a certain price without all of these things factored in you then it then becomes an overcumbersome cost so if your margin is 30 percent and all of a sudden five percent of that is being going to be eaten up by impact related things you're going to think well oh you know that's that's too much we're not going to survive without it so it's really important to put the focus on there from day one, which is what we've done. And now it's just part of the business. You know, we we do things responsibly. Um, we we have a self-induced carbon tax. Um, we 
have a department in place like these are things that we that are just there just like every other part of the business and so we will always continue using them and of course we can't always make the perfect decision right away um like i would love to have a better packaging solution than what we currently have we've tried bioplastics we've tried um other more compostable packaging types and it's just not there yet the technology so you can't beat yourself up about that because we're not a packaging producer we're a plant-based cheese company but as soon as we, it is a possibility even if it's a little bit more we will pick that option um so yeah it's it's a ever-evolving process and and i think the best component of this or the best best example of this sorry is patagonia um because they a few years well about a year ago when i went to a workshop and um they were talking about when they introduced organic cotton in the 1990s and they thought the whole of the fashion industry is is slowly going to get on border with this um and they um were reflecting really inwardly at this event saying listen the amount of organic cotton that's um purchased um as a percentage hasn't changed it's still one percent of all cotton even though for the best part of 30 years we've pushed organic cotton and then they said we're really disappointed with that because we really thought we would be able to drive wider change and i love it when i see that because they have still done great things their products have been uh, responsibly produced but they are reflective enough to demand a lot more from themselves and that will always drive improvements and um yeah that is the way in which we we change as, as a species but yeah kind of sitting sitting on what you've got resting on your laurels um not really understanding the numbers that's yeah you can't claim to be an impact company if you're doing those things yeah for sure for sure and how do you um apply those techniques or uh, models to your own personal life for sustainability yeah. So we we uh, get a, a weekly farm box. Uh, so it's not all year round, but it's about um, 30 to 35 weeks of the year. Comes uh, from a farm just up the road, five kilometers away. It's amazing. So much, um, so much variety in it. Uh, we compost. So we have our own composter, but we actually produce too much compost to just use this one. So we take <laughs> it around the corner. Um, I mean, I bike most places. I still fly more than I probably would like, but uh, I at least offset that. I do also have an offsetting scheme for my life in general. I think there is some questions about um, these schemes, but I mean, just like I was saying before, I think better to support these things than not, even if they're not perfect, you know, absolutely perfect yet. Um, yeah, I mean, our diets are predominantly plant-based. We have a renewable energy provider. Um, yeah, we're not perfect, but it's uh, we make a lot of decisions that are actually really easy. You know, m most of these things don't inconvenience us at all. You just got to set it up initially. Um, and how do you think being in the Netherlands as opposed to your native England has made this whole journey easier or harder? I think it's maybe easier because I knew less people when I got here. So there's, you know, less stigma within existing circles. Although I think my friends, we've all grown up a little bit 
mm. in the world a slightly different way. Uh, but that would have probably been harder. Um, I think here in Amsterdam is a pretty special place, like for yeah, changing your diet. It's it, the options are just amazing. Also, the yeah, the market's pretty sweet here. I, I love that side. Um, I think the Dutch are well. One thing I love about the Dutch is that they will switch their opinion on something um, very quickly, even if they feel very strongly the other way um, when going into a conversation. And that has helped us insurmountably when getting going, because in the UK, for example, I think if you put a plant-based cheese in front of some, a lot of people, they wouldn't even try it. And even if they did try it and, and they enjoyed it, because of the stigma they had at the start of the conversation, that is what they would keep throughout the conversation. Whereas the Dutch, they might come in and really be quite skeptical, but then they try something and then they're like, oh, actually that's really good. And so I love that mentality. I think it's really something that I've got a little bit better at still working on. <laughs> I love to see that. Um, and then actually the final thing, I think like the general ecosystem here is amazing in Amsterdam. We, we have got so many great friends running similar projects here who we've had such great connections with, you know, sharing retail contacts, production contacts, supplier contracts. Um, yeah, I never think you should share something in order to then get something back. You know, you should just be wanting to openly give, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, there's an amazing cycle of karma <laughs> running around the uh, <laughs> space in uh, Amsterdam. So, uh, yeah. Oh God, I mean, the heart of, you know, progressivism and sustainability and tech. I mean, Amsterdam yeah. is such an amazing city. Yeah, uh, to totally. And I think what's cool is other projects I've been involved in, like when we used to work for, or in the media world, you're working against other media companies, whereas sat here, I'm applauding the success of other food startups, um, which is a much nicer place to be um, than, uh, yeah, uh, just going solo. I mean, if the food industry is to change, it's never going to be because Willie Croft changed it. It's because Willie Croft and many others changed it. So you have to hope that many other people are doing the same thing. What brilliant sentiment. On that note, um, can I ask if there is someone else or another organization that you would like to platform and we'll reach out and speak to them? Yes. A um, friend of mine called Andres uh, Yara, He's uh, he runs the CSA that we get our veggie boxes from. So he is a man of many talents. He's um, a Colombian farmer um, and he... He's, he's spent a lot of time in various countries around Europe um, doing various different farming projects. And he's also got quite a strong um, kind of culinary background as well. So he's an amazing organic uh, farmer. He's an incredible chef. And he particularly thrives on um, if there's an ingredient that has been overproduced and would be thrown away, he will just make the most incredible salsa chutney you name it he's he's just got so many so many talents we had too much fondue at one point so we did this amazing event where he made this um this like plant-based chowder and all of these crazy recipes that had no link to fondue um, 
yeah, he's a really cool, uh, cool guy, and he's you know, the way he talks about um, uh, bringing farming back to the localities and uh, uh, fixing the food waste that we have in the world and, and all these all these important topics is really nice. So okay, I'd, I'd recommend him. And he's from uh, Roots Rice and Beans. Roots, rice, and beans. Okay. Thank you, Brad. Now tell me, where can people find you or Willowcroft? Uh, yeah, you can find me in Amsterdam. Willowcroft, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can also find in Amsterdam. So we got a, a little store on Spiegelgrap, which um, this time of year I think is the most beautiful street in, in Amsterdam. It's, uh, it's all lit up with the Christmas lights. It's banging the heart, heart of the city. Uh, it's the first plant-based cheese store in, in the Netherlands. Uh, we also have an online store where yeah, it's also across the whole of well quite a few european countries now and then it's just yeah willycroft.com um for yeah everything else okay oh thank you so much this was absolutely brilliant thanks so much for coming on and having a chat thanks for uh yeah i love talking about these things so yeah. thanks for hosting it pleasure <laughs> pleasure Hey everyone, you can find links to Willowcroft's online store in the show notes. I highly recommend their This Is Not Fondue. I would also recommend following their Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn pages because they are such brilliant resources on climate change uh, policies and activism currently underway in the EU. You can also find Platform Enterprise on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and sign up to our podcast newsletter for information on episodes and guests every week at podcast.platformenterprise.com. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Leave a review, let us know what you thought. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.